Hello, and welcome to the third Shawbrook podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Neveling, the editor of Real Deals magazine. And on today's program, we will delve into the world of asset-based lending. Before the financial crisis, ABL was a debt product on the fringes, the place to go when trouble loomed and mainstream lenders had shut their doors. Although still seen as a niche product by many, especially in the private equity community, a thriving community of independent providers have worked hard to change perceptions and show sponsors what they can do. It hasn't always been easy. Debt is plentiful, and direct lenders have come into the market and rapidly grown market share. But ABL has been making inroads. According to UK Finance, the number of businesses using ABL facilities now stands at 40,000, and the number of larger companies with turnover of 10 million or more using the product is higher than ever. To help how ABL has gained traction in the M&A space and unpack how sponsor attitudes have evolved, I'm joined by two guests, Nick Leach and Andy Dimmock. Nick Leach is a managing director at Shawbrook Bank and heads up the bank's business centers. He joined in 2016 and launched Shawbrook's first ever regional hub in Birmingham. He has worked in finance and M&A for more than 20 years, including spells at professional services firm EY and as an investment director at private equity firm Endless. Nick, I sketched out my thoughts on how the market has evolved during the last 10 years. What is your take on where ABL sits in the acquisition finance food pyramid? And do you think it is fulfilling its potential as an option for private equity businesses? As far as the corporate finance marketplace is concerned, the use of ABL, I think, has become uh, much more commonplace as a consideration. So when anybody's looking at an opportunity and the circumstance behind it, the, the risk profiles related to it, the, the funding requirements, then uh, ABL sits alongside much more readily regular mainstream type funding. Um, that's as much to do with you know, the ABL market demonstrating what it can do as well as advisors and sponsors recognizing what it can do as well and wanting it to be part of a solution and asking for it to be part of a solution as opposed to uh, feeling like it's a make-do solution. I guess that's where we've seen things change over the last 10 or 15 years, um, is a recognition that it has a a real specific relevance uh, for certain types of transactions where other solutions just don't work. And and I guess that's where the learning points and the journey has come through people just experiencing uh, not only transacting with it, but how it works in real life. Um, So there's a lot of evidence out there of where it's been very appropriate and very effective. Thanks, Nick. And we're also joined by Andy Dimmock, who is a director in the debt advisory practice at FRP Advisory. Andy was one of the founders of Litmus Advisory, a specialist ABL debt advisor that was acquired by FRP in 2016. He has extensive knowledge of the ABL landscape and has advised numerous sponsors and portfolio companies over the years. Welcome, Andy. Following on from Nick's point, how do you think PE views the ABL product? And do you think attitudes have shifted in recent years? I certainly agree that the the sponsor community is far more aware of ABL than it was, for example, 10 years ago. I think at that time, ABL was very much viewed as as purely uh, a turnaround type product. led by the balance sheet rather than the earnings. So basically businesses that didn't necessarily have the earnings profile to to enable them to arrange a a more traditional leverage facility uh, would at that point go down the ABL market or go down the ABL route. Uh, But I think 
through a lot of hard work from the ABL lenders themselves, they have, have made their product sit well and made the private equity community accept it and understand it. Um, I think there's huge appetite um, in the ABL community to work with private equity and acceptance has come through through use really. So, you know, guys that have touched it, felt it, seen it work, see, realise how it, you know, it can benefit the right business. Maybe those guys have also moved around themselves, so that's widened its acceptance into, into other private equity houses. So it's now, although it is still a, a viable product for, for, for turnaround scenarios, it's also a viable product for growth businesses and, and, and a range of scenarios. Thanks, Andy. I think that sets the scene uh, nicely. But I really wanted to, to dig into a bit more detail um, about the offering and perhaps how it's changed or, or how it could change to indeed widen acceptance even further. Nick, I wanted to ask you, about your thoughts on the sort of the entry monitoring and exit fees, which always seem to be a big issue with sponsors. They always seem to complain about it. What is your view on that? And, and, and do you think it is as serious an obstacle as it's sometimes made out? It's not a serious obstacle anymore. I mean, I guess there was some challenge uh, and valid uh, in times past to how some exiting exit fees were applied to transactions when they were, I guess, businesses failed or unsuccessful. If you look now, um, I mean, arrangement fees are very much in line with acquisition debt type structures and probably less than typically you'd find a lev finance structure. The marketplace has evolved such and relationships have evolved such with advisors and or sponsors that people are focused on the war, not the battle. And what I mean by that, there's no, there's no point in exiting a business and taking you know, excessive fees out of that if you want to do business again with somebody. Um, and the market's matured in such a way as that people get found out very quickly if, if those sort of behaviours exist. And to my knowledge, I haven't seen anything to that effect for an awful long time. It's certainly nothing that we as a bank uh, have ever been accused of. Um, but I think that's true of pretty much all our peers in the marketplace, which is which is great to hear. Andy, I mean, Nick mentioned that there has been that transformation, but I, certainly in my conversations with, with certain sponsors, there's sometimes a view that um, the business model for some providers, not all, is um, to make the margins on the fees rather than the principal and, and interest on, on, on the loan. Do you still see that in the market or, or as Nick described, is that no longer a feature? To, to be honest, I don't, I don't really see uh, fees as an issue. I think, again, ABL has, has matured as a product set and is very focused on, on working with the private equity community. I think the key is it, it doesn't matter whether the fee be service fee or borrowings or, 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 or whatever. Uh, it's about blended cost of capital now. Um, I, I would see ABL, as Nick's, as Nick's already touched on, as possibly lower price than leverage now. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of, from an advisor's perspective, it's probably um, fourth on the list in terms of considerations when, you, when you're looking to raise a facility for a sponsor. Uh, you know, first is probably quantum to provide headroom. Second is amortisation, so how much of the facility is revolving to, to minimise debt service. And third is, is ease of covenants, and probably price comes fourth, as long as it's not out of market. And I guess I would say it wouldn't I, but that's where you know using an advisor is helpful because there is a com competitive dynamic to the process to ensure that uh, the client obtains the best facility and price is an element of that, but it is only one element. Just, just, just to add yeah. to that, I think, um, you know, if you go back in times past, part of the challenge was educating some of the sponsor community 
around how an ABL facility expands and contracts and moves with the balance sheet and then creates additional availability subject to the trading profile. Uh, and I guess in times past, people were more familiar with static uh, leverage structures where you know they were committed facilities and really once they're in place, all you're looking at, at is term debt unwinding or monitoring covenants and they weren't quite so labor intensive. Um, and I get that, uh, and, and that's very appropriate for, for deals which work in that way. But if you're looking for additional capital or funding to support working capital because a business is growing or a balance sheet is growing, then yeah, a left structure might not be the right one to, to support that. Back to my point earlier, which is you know, people had learned over time and experienced over time how the appropriateness of, of structure is really important. And PE is much more accepting of that, uh, and that's a job that they've done themselves in learning what's out there uh, because they want the best structures. But it's also a job that's been done by the banks, the funders, the ABLs like ourselves, and, and indeed Andy's community, which is the advisors who've you know, all worked together to, to move and educate beyond where we were to where we are now. One area for that for me, and, and again, the ABL community has moved significantly over 10 years, is around the documentation. Whereas if you look 10 years ago, uh, the standard documentation was very much an on-demand facility, which didn't really suit a sponsor-backed sponsor transaction. Um, but I think certainly, you know, the mid-tier mid corporate ABL market that is focused on private equity has worked very hard to bring their documentation in the line. So although there's no LMA standard per se, you've got far more committed documents now where, yes, you have to understand to next point how the balance sheet moves through a year to operate with an ABL facility, but the covenants are financial and operational are far clearer and set so that you, you do at least know exactly how that facility is going to work. The, the total discretion that ABLs used to have 10 years ago probably doesn't exist anymore. Transactions are built on a sale price or an asking price quite often. And, you know, equity providers are looking to maximise the equity capital they're putting in and getting the best return on every pound that they're putting in. And by using more debt or using debt, that, that, can, that can accelerate or help that. So they're going to look at deals and transactions and say, well, what's going to give me the right level of debt capacity there? And ABL historically, you know, sometime back again, fell short on that because all it would do was to leverage the balance sheet to a margin uh, so far. Um, but actually, you know, people like Shawbrook and our community have, have extended that quite significantly into adding levels of cash flow over and above that, which is effectively unsecured lending, which gives greater leverage and gives greater potential for debt capacity. And in certain circumstances can provide significantly more than a normal leverage structure. But equally, the, tr the opposite is true as well. Leverage will work in very strong businesses with very strong cash flows where you know a higher multiple on EBITDA is probably going to, to win the day. But it's more comparable now because the quantums available through using extended ABL structures uh, have moved on quite a step. Nick, really interesting. And, and yeah, that leads on to a question I had for you. How, how suitable is is ABL for mainstream deals? Uh, I guess it, historically it has been very popular with uh, special situation sponsors. Um, but given what Nick's sketched out there, do you, do you see a fit for an ABL product with what we could describe as a, a vanilla buyout? Yeah, very much so. And I think the key to that is, is the point that Nick touched on, which is um, that, that the ABLs have, have enabled themselves to enter that, that mainstream market by being able to go beyond the balance sheet. So it's very important to look at then the strong earnings businesses that can support a cash flow 
term loan in addition to what the balance sheet will provide that pushes it towards you know stronger credit scenarios and that's very much what what ABO wants to do it wants to be mainstream and it's had to think its way around it there are some businesses where the balance sheet generates sufficient but there are strong businesses out there where the, the balance sheet can generate good working capital facilities and good availability but there is a need to go that bit further so for the right credit the ABL community will deal with that. Okay, just adding on that, yeah. one of the things that's that's been learned as well is how ABLs work with sponsors and how sponsors work with ABLs because you know nobody wants in, to intentionally breach covenants or trip over covenants or cause any friction but it happens and, and how the relationship works and how people behave when that happens. Um, sponsors are very wary of um, uncommitted funding that might require additional funding and for them to go back to their investment committees and you say, you know what, we've, we've only been able to push our ABL so far and they're not helping us any further. And you, you know, things have moved around because the balance sheet's moved around. You know, that, that's uncomfortable territory unless people have learned from that, understand that and are very clear around the dynamics of the funding structure going going in and also ABLs also are more familiar with how sponsors think about this and supportive in a way that they they can get comfort in the way a sponsor is going to be committed and carry on being committed to a deal. So that educational process around um, how you work together when things don't go quite according to plan again helps to breed, breed and build trust. And you're just following up from that, have you seen as many mainstream deals funded using ABL or is it still the case a sponsor is maybe more familiar with the sort of cookie cutter bank or fund loan and that simply because of that familiarity they maybe don't look as closely at, at the ABL as, as they might? That probably is the case and I think one of, one of the challenges that ABL has is it needs to um, enhance the knowledge of, of maybe some of the corporate finance advisors because in, in new transactions one of the challenges that ABL does have is um, very often if you enter a data room, the content of that da data room is aimed at a traditional leverage transaction. So, you know, it may be introduced to the ABL community in terms of say, well, okay, what can you do here? Um, but the data isn't really there to give an informed opinion on that and that can delay it in the process. Uh, but in terms of, of, of ongoing, we get involved as well as bid support, we get involved in refinancing scenarios um, and therefore where, where, when access to information isn't an issue, um, then yeah, it can go into the mainstream, certainly. Yeah, Nick, what is your perception as, as someone in, in, in the market and as a lender? Do you, do you sometimes see deals where you think it would be a good fit, but maybe the sponsor is just sticking with what they know or what's more familiar? I see very few sponsors who won't consider it. I, I really struggle to think of anybody I've come across in the PE space. Similar, and is that know. a change? Yeah, it's, it's quite a fundamental change because remember, through, through the life cycle of, of an investment fund, you start off with one debt structure. You might not end up with the same debt structure. So you will have seen some leverage structures expand as more capital or debts required to grow the business further out. You'll have seen businesses start with leverage and it not go according to plan. And you know they can't get any more debt from a mainstream and they have to look at a more structured ABL to not quite get them out of jail, but to give them oxygen to be able to move the business forward. So in live fire, 
of of building an investment portfolio and you know taking taking a fund and making sure all that capital's invest, invested effectively you know we've been on a journey over the last 10 15 years where these different products have been used by a lot of investment directors and directors and partners in sponsor firms and seeing you know how it really does and doesn't work um, so I, th I think the big, you know, the big ticket, uh, the really big ticket main market funds, I don't think you'll see much in the way of the sort of ABL structure that Andy and I are familiar with, but SME, so larger S, mid-market type firms, you will see evidence of that. And most of the people in that community are familiar with it. Um, and as I said, it's probably more the minority now you'll find anybody who who hasn't experienced it or is just completely negative or bearish on it. Okay. Uh, that would be unusual now, I think. Andy, I also wanted to ask you about the kinds of check sizes that, that the ABL community is able to, to put out. Is there room for, for growth in the size of check? And if there is, does, does that move the offer forward in any way? There's always, there's always room for growth. I mean, I think um, certainly again, 10, 15 years ago, um, transactions at the sort of 50, 60 million level were very, very few and far between. And I'd say they're now now fairly commonplace. Once you get to sort of 100 million and plus, um, those, those facilities tend to be syndicated and that does add a layer of complexity on any transaction. So uh, I think if the ABL community can move the dial and continue to do so, that, that will open up opportunities. But it's probably stabilised at around the 50, 60 as a hold level now. Um, and it's been there for a number of years. So I think, yeah, if it could move to, to 100 as a, as a hold position, um, that would be a positive. You probably could get 100 million held by one, but it'd be fairly unusual, I think. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think if you look at the evolution of ABL, it started off with receivables and extending its receivables a bit into other asset classes. And now it's nailed down its ability to leverage those asset classes. Now, actually, what we're seeing is ABL's doing deals without receivables. So you, one doesn't have to be hitched to the other. Um, now, you tend to see... Uh, ABL and club deals or syndicate deals using all that balance sheet, as Andy says, probably up to about the 100 million mark. Um, I'd say in our space, we we would see deals of that size uh, fairly infrequently. Um, we've had deals recently up to, with other parties, up to sort of 50, 50-ish million. But once you start getting beyond that level, there's a lot of debt funds out there. There's, there's a wall of money. Uh, and funds with scale to be able to write a check on their own at certain levels. So you, you tend to um, you tend to not get overexcited about, well, there's a great opportunity to be part of a big, large, large transaction here. I think you have to set your expectations as to where you're best placed. And... You know, unless there's a specific revolver required against a specific asset class, which a debt fund couldn't do. So let's say you've got a, a business or uh, with a very high inventory base that needs a revolver attached around that and it needs some smart thinking around that, then a debt fund might come along and say, well, we can give you a chunk of change, but it's amortizing. Well, that doesn't work for the cash flow profile of the business. That's, that's where I think we can win at that scale. But if it's just a big deal, then I guess you start start seeing the clearers or some of the, the more, I wouldn't say on the fringe, but but some of those more non-standard large debt funds just taking that out. It sounds like there's not a particular appetite to go and do these huge deals. 
in the first place. It would be wrong of me to say we're not open for business. I would be delighted to do those those larger deals. Uh, and But we would tend to, to want to club those with other people. And we're very skilled at doing that. But it's not a market we go actively because there's deal risk associated with that. I mean, we typically get up to about 25 million. We can push beyond that. But when you once you get into the big larger transactions, you will be one of quite a number of parties involved in that transaction. It'll be well advised. Um, you know, there's a fair bit of deal risk as whether you're going to be, you know, the last couple of people still at the party to be able to consummate that transaction. It's not that we're not up for that, uh, but one has to be mindful of, of that and, and looking at where best to place your resources and where best your skill sets are in adding most value to those types of transactions or, or transactions that best suit you as a funder. In terms of the market on that, from FRP's perspective, you know, the, the, the average deal size has probably gone north over the last 10 years or so. Uh, I guess we probably initially would, would the majority of transactions by number we advised on will be between, I don't know, five and 20 million. It's probably now between 10 and 50, but certainly the, the, the north of 50 are few and far between. If we look forward, and I suppose there's a growing consensus um, that the cred credit cycle is going to turn soon at some point, if, if indeed there is a, a, a downturn, how is ABL positioned and, and where does that leave the offer? Um, Nick, maybe if you could take that one first. It's been consistently there through previous cycles. Um, I mean, receivables was used you know, in the early 90s when that, there was the recession there. You, if you looked at 2007 as well, um, it consistently performed through that. So I think if you look at the number of companies that were using, using it then, um, and are still using it now, um, you'd still see pretty much a straight line of growth through that. I think the fundamental is because it is securitized through looking at the balance sheet and using the balance sheet, um, you know, as long as we can get comfortable that there is a plan there with debt service associated with it, then it, it is a more comfortable place to be than unsecured leverage. Um, it, it, it's inevitable. So I wouldn't say we would forecast an uptick in business if we see the cycle dropping, but, but we wouldn't be expecting it to fall off, actually. We'd expect at least to hold our position through that. And is it a product that's well-suited to periods of, of volatility? And do you think that's something that could gain traction with, with sponsors? I think it is, and I think it, you know, it's been around for a while now, so it has been through a number of, of, of economic cycles. In terms of uh, the structure of facilities. If the facility is, is correctly structured in the first place, then it is very clear how, how an ABL will work, even in a downturn. So that will have been modelled. Um, the sponsor will model it um, from an advisor's perspective. You will look at you know downside scenarios just to make sure that the, the facility still works. And I do think in a downturn, there is an opportunity. I mean, we've, we've done a number of refinances where a business is perhaps on a traditional leverage facility and breaching covenant. Um, debt service is becoming challenged. If you can put a proper ABL structure in place on the working capital assets and, and turn an element of term debt into revolving debt to de-stress the cash, then that's an opportunity for ABL. If the product is to uh, grow and the market's to grow, are there any things that um, you would like to see or that you think would, would, would help to 
to expand the market. I'm not expecting any gifts uh, or any um, legislative change. I guess that's that's there that's going to going to help us any big way. I mean, it's it's within our gift to get out there and help people understand what the art of the possible of the structures. I think that movement away, potentially just focusing purely on receivables and looking at other asset classes and doing those. You know, I wouldn't say everybody's comfortable in our space with doing that. I could see that as being a revolutionary point going forward. Um, if you look at how our business has evolved, uh, we are doing more cash flow. We've also now moved into being able to do leverage as well. So from a, from a sponsor's perspective or an advisor's perspective, I think a winning solution is not just a cookie cutter solution, which is you know fairly formulaic. It needs to be able to take a scenario, look at that, and then tailor a solution to it, which might be a mix of you know, just pure asset coverage, asset plus cash flow, or leverage, and it's been able to adapt along those ways uh, and be seen to be able to do that, which you know we, we are firmly in that position now, which will set us out, I guess, going forward in, and, and future-proof today and going forward. Andy, any thoughts on what the product can, or the community can do? I agree with Nick. I think um, you know it's, it's an education process that's incumbent on the advisors and on the ABL lenders to market themselves and show when the structures do work uh, make sure that all sponsors are aware of that and just to keep that profile up. Andy, Nick, thank you very much and thank you to everyone for listening.